Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Today we're joined by Dr Jasmine Scarlett. Jasmine has a specialism in the historical and social aspects of volcanic eruptions and has recently written an open access paper in the Springer Link Journal on a topic that she has a fascination in and one you may hear more of in the future, dark geocultural heritage. Thank you for joining us today, Jasmine. No, thank you for having me. Your main interests have been described as the creation and preservation of volcanic knowledge and how vulnerability, risk and resilience are linked to culture. Is that right? And could you dismantle each one of those terms? Uh, yes. Yeah, so um, why, why I say the creation and preservation of volcanic knowledge is that um, I've had the opportunity to use archives to reconstruct past volcanic events. So I've used like newspaper articles, letters, diaries and photographs to try and understand how the volcano impacted the people. So for me, in terms of the creation and preservation, it's um, who basically constructs that knowledge and who creates it and which knowledge is important and um, also kind of like kind of linking to the notion of um, the idea of scientific knowledge, like how is scientific knowledge created and how is it um, passed down to generation to generation in terms of how do we live with um, natural hazards. In terms of the vulnerability, risk and resilience, um, linking to culture, uh, it's because that uh, these things are social constructs and these constructs are very closely linked to how a society evolves with its culture. So through time, these things change as the society changes through its various um, social changes and cultures. So yeah, I think those are two very important things in terms of how we live with natural hazards because yeah, knowledge and culture, I think, is very fundamental in how we try and navigate the society we're in today. That point on knowledge and culture in natural hazards um, is, is your focus, of course. You describe yourself on Twitter as a volcano queen uh, and a chaotic queer. Um, <laughs> how did you come to be known as such? Uh, so... Um, I've been come to known as a volcano queen because I do talk about volcanoes a lot. <laughs> um, and just I just find them so fascinating and people um, know my enthusiasm for um, volcanology. So that's how that term came about. And a chaotic queer. So I am queer, um, but I'm chaotic because I don't, I, it's hard to describe, but just really strange things happen to me. Um, and it turns, tends to be very chaotic. And I and someone did say once upon a time that you seem to attract chaos. Um, <laughs> so I was like, you know, what? I'm going to roll with that. <laughs> uh, that's how that came to be, really. <laughs> and it fits very well with volcanology, of course. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> Your PhD was based on the historical eruption of La Soufriere. Why did you choose to focus on St. Vincent and the Grenadines? Um, so mainly it was a mixture of scientific and personal reasons. So the personal reason is because my family is from St. Vincent and the Grenadines and they have experienced and lived through um, 
the volcanic eruptions, but and they have memories and stories of 1902 and 1979 eruption. Um, but the scientific reason is that coincidentally, uh, the eruptions I looked at happened at distinct stages of social development. So I looked at the 1812 eruption, which happened during the slavery era, and then 1902, which was post-emancipation, and then 1979, where they were um, on the eve of gaining political independence from the British. So for me, that was um, sort of like a focus lens to see how the volcano kind of exacerbated social issues relevant to each time period. Because, of course, this is to show that, yes, the society was evolving as well as the culture. And here's these disasters to shine a light on the particular issues that they were experiencing at the time. So, yeah, so it, I was very fortunate that I was able to choose um, the volcano to research. And this is what, when um, at the very beginning of my PhD, I was saying to my supervisor, like, I really want to do it on St. Vincent and La Frere because of these reasons and then of course they were like yes that sounds brilliant go ahead um so that's how that came about did you consider any other dates or events or are these the main three in in the history of saint vincent and the grenadines there are four recorded eruptions for um la Sofre, and that's 1718 and then the three other ones and it's mainly these three because of the historical record that survived. So for 1718, there's not a lot of evidence, particularly in the archives, that this happened. So it would have taken a lot more resources and time to try and track down um, that information in order to include it into the thesis. So I've really focused on 1812, because there was more data that I could work with, um, essentially. In a YouTube seminar series called Geoscience in Context by Cambridge Earth Sciences, you answered the question, how did the colonial society of St. Vincent adapt to the volcanic eruption of La Soufrère? Um, could you give us a summary answer to that too? Um, yes. So that was like the main question I was asking for my thesis. And so what was very interesting about using this as case studies, that these three eruptions happened during when um, St. Vincent was a colony of um, Britain. So it was also to see not only how they coped on the island, but also the relations between the British Empire and how involved they were in um, helping manage these crises. And so how they did come to adapt is mainly, uh, it starts off like it was, so the 812 eruption happened when the colony was relatively young because St. Vincent was one of the last islands to be um, colonised and occupied by Britain. So it was quite a new experience, essentially. So it did essentially catch them off guard. A lot of um, negative outcomes happened. So they didn't really adapt then because in 1902 there was similar impacts, but then there was kind of more perpetration of um, the racism that was being experienced. So essentially, certain members of society, uh, mainly um, British colonists, were more able to um, take the opportunity to gain financial assistance compared to those who were descendants of slaves and were obviously uh, free persons by stage. But in terms of the adaptation between the two, there wasn't really 
see, obviously, this is where the archives can't tell me whether it was on purpose that they wanted to continue working on the same locations that were impacted in 1812, or it was the idea of that, that benefits outweigh the costs. So, um, of course, we all know that volcanic um, soils are very fertile, so, of course, the yields were a lot greater on these lands in the plantations. So was it just that they wanted to take the benefits that they would reap um, from that? But in terms of the adaptation between the two, it seems to be more of um, the options available in terms of financial assistance. But again, this is where the racism in, um, came into play because there was barriers for certain people getting access to those financial assistances. But by 1979, it was a lot better, mainly because the science was better. So uh, we had uh, the use of seismographs at that point, and we had more established um, kind of emergency management protocols. And also there was a wider um, kind of scientific, um, what's the word, I would say, partnership, I would say. Because um, in, in 1979, there was a lot of American and British volcanologists that helped and assisted with that event. So um, it was more of communication was better, um, science was better, and also that people did remember 1902. So they kind of would be like, okay, this is bad. We should act on this immediately. And because of that quick kind of response, actually no one died in 1979 compared to 1812 and 1902. So um, I would say it was more the main overall adaptation is that even though the society is reactive, they're very prompt with their actions. I would say that's kind of like the main outcome of that and the financial assistance associated. So there were no deaths in, in 1979, but was there still this uh, discrepancy uh, along racial lines for financial assistance and reward in in that era, or had that also started to level out by then? It definitely did level out by then, um, by 1979. In terms of, uh, I would say it was more of what um, kind of job you were working in that main impacted if you got the assistance or not. So um, farmers got obviously a lot more assistance because they were more directly impacted. But other kind of job sectors, it was a little bit different because obviously their work was disrupted, but they could essentially go back to work kind of immediately because, of course, their skills were different to the farmers and the tools they needed were different. So it, was, it depended on what job you were doing. But there was not really... Uh, any of that kind of barriers in place so you would have seen in 1902 and 1812. You've mentioned a few forms of data collection and you used a mixed method data approach. Uh, is that right? Could you tell us what that means? Yes, so a mixed methods data collection approach means essentially collecting um, qualitative and quantitative data. So I did collect um, statistical data, so deaths, injuries, how much land was impacted, how much um, the um, agricultural sector in terms of the economy was impacted. So in terms of how did it disrupt trade and exports and imports. Uh, so that's more of the quantitative kind of um, number crunching stuff. But then 
the qualitative data was using these diary entries, these letters. Um, I also did semi-structured interviews as 1979 is still in living memory. So I actually um, spoke to quite quite a few people across the island to get their experiences um, their, of what happened during the event. And for that, I was mainly trying to showcase that even though this eruption impacted the whole island, um, depending on who you are, the experience is different. And so that's just to show that, you know, we can't kind of give a general overview of how a volcanic corruption can impact people because people's experiences can be so different depending on their own circumstances. And you didn't just uncover uh, racism. You also used feminist standpoint theory, is that correct, about how women uh, were impacted differently to men um, on these Caribbean islands? Uh, yes, yeah, so that was... Uh, slightly different of how I use feminist standpoint theory. So the original theory is to basically use voice as a data. So people's experiences as data. And this start, I started to question what I was, what data I was collecting because for, in the archives it's essentially written by one kind of part of demographic. So it was mainly written by white um, elite men. So um, colonists. So this is for the 8 to 12, 1902. And I was just like, well, where are the voices of the women? Because their experiences would be different. Where are the children's voices? Because theirs would be different. What about the disabled? And what sort of the indigenous groups, the Kalinigo and the Guafana? And many other uh, marginalized groups you could think of. And this is where I started to think, well, how can I try and find a way to, I suppose, acknowledge that these voices are missing, but then try and do an active approach to try and counteract that? So I kind of applies the feminist standpoint theory in terms of uh, being more conscious of who I selected to interview. So I picked men, women of different ages uh, and who had different like occupations when the eruption happened and, you know, different stages of life. Like, for example, I spoke to some who were um, housewives. I spoke to some who were teachers. Uh, I spoke to someone who was in the police force, uh, someone who worked for the government. So I kind of tried to broaden my kind of reach in terms of experiences because the archives will only essentially show kind of one perspective of the story when volcanic corruptions can basically tell many stories because there's so many people that are impacted. And did you represent your findings in eruption impact maps? Yes. So um, these eruption impact maps, they're slightly different to volcanic hazard maps um, as volcanic has maps use um, geological records as well as any historical information to try and piece together the deposits. But the eruption impact map, I, it was kind of sort of in reverse a little bit. It's mainly looking at where things went, where things flowed um, as witnessed by the people. So for this, I focused on four main hazards. I focused on ashfall, pyroclastic density currents, which are very hot and very fast gravity-driven flows that have a mixture of uh, hot gases, hot material, and any debris picked up. I also looked at lahars, which are essentially volcanic mud flows, and also uh, looked at instances of volcanic earthquakes to try and uh, see basically what, what warnings were given off 
by the eruption and then is it associated with magma movement or with actually just an explosion of the volcano so for these it's kind of centraling people's experiences and then mapping those as opposed to using the geological record to show where the deposits are and in fact these eruption impact maps they do actually correlate very similarly to the volcanic hazard map we have today of St Vincent so actually these it kind of complements the geological kind of perspective investigations as well some of your findings have have been uh, negative um were there any positives um in in your work either in foreign aid or in international support to St Vincent and the Grenadines Yes, so there was definitely um, some positives in those in terms of foreign aid, international support. It kind of got better um, if as we go through time. So in 1812, only found kind of minimal kind of uh, examples of, of foreign aid, and I wouldn't actually say for 1812 foreign aid because it came from Barbados, which is another colony of Britain during this time, and it's kind of Barbados was like the kind of hub for the colony, um, British colonies in the Lesser Antilles. So it was kind of like a kind of like an extension of aid in terms of the British Empire. But then in nineteen oh two, because the eruption was a lot bigger and a lot more devastating, there was a lot more international support and aid that, that was beyond the British West Indies. So we actually there's um, got there was like aids given from like the the Kingdom of the Netherlands um, from Germany, North America, uh, oh, I can't remember the top of my head, but there's loads of different places that you wouldn't expect. And there was actually, obviously, quite a lot that was going on in the UK as well at that point. Lots of fundraising going on um, and donations. Um, and actually, the uh, I can't remember the name because it was a very long time ago, but like the, the London Mayor actually put together quite a big fundraiser together to send money to St Vincent uh, but in 1979 again I think it was maybe slightly different because there was St Vincent people now living in the UK and in the US and in Canada so the diaspora kind of spearheaded that um, kind of like um, assistance and mutual support whereas again though other countries um, did assist as well and with quite a lot of um, help did come from um, Europe um, in that point as well. That's really interesting about the impact of the diaspora in the in the 20th century and, and I guess crowdfunding and, and community-led um, fundraising. What is geo-heritage and dark cultural heritage? <laughs> okay so uh, geo-heritage is essentially kind of the preservation and usage of geological sites, mainly for not just like tourism purposes, but for research. Um, and uh, I mean, they've been used for arts and culture as well. But then dark cultural heritage. So I would separate the two. So the cultural heritage is essentially the same as geoheritage, but it's related to culture. So for example, it's usually buildings. So buildings with cultural significance, uh, but then dark heritage is essentially places, buildings, sites that are associated with uh, trauma. So um, uh, I would say um, popular in um, air quotations are World War Two sites. Um, and like the most popular in quotation marks destination 
is like um, concentration camps. So Auschwitz is one of the most um, highly visited dark heritage sites. So essentially any kind of form of trauma experienced by humans or the environment. And then that does tie to culture because it does kind of shape who we are as a society in terms of what's happened and in terms of how dark humanity is really it sounds quite similar to uh dark tourism yes that's um being talked about more and more uh, you coined a, a phrase a geocultural heritage uh, why and how does this link to natural hazards and the concept of risk and resilience Yes, so essentially with geocultural heritage, this is where I link it to volcanoes uh, because volcanoes, they are geological landforms and they are cultural places of cultural significance as well to many um, societies around the world, either religiously or spiritually or uh, no, for, for, for the arts or aesthetics, tourism, anything you think of. And this links to natural hazards as... Essentially, natural hazards are part of our society and are part of our culture. And volcanoes, they essentially, they're kind of like the most obvious kind of, I suppose, landform or entity you can think of that is a natural hazard. Even though, of course, they have all this beauty associated with it, it does have a darker side to it as well. Uh, and this links then to the concept of risk and resilience because we can use heritage to be like, this is the significance of these volcanic areas let's learn from let's learn from it let's learn from the history of these volcanoes and the culture around it and this we can work, try and figure out the risk in terms of if societies respond to a certain thing or not and with this then we can work on the resilience where we can be like okay so let's um, prepare you for if there is a next eruption by doing x y and z so it's kind of like links to mainly like education and knowledge, which kind of links back to my kind of interests of um, knowledge creation and preservation. Finally, Jasmine, in your recent paper, The Dark Geocultural Heritage of Volcanoes, Combining Cultural and Geoheritage Perspectives for Mutual Benefits, you encourage increased interdisciplinary collaboration. Why is that? That paper... It was an interdisciplinary project um, collaboration itself. So I worked with an archaeologist in Denmark and just bringing multiple perspectives um, and expertise to a problem, can it, it can open more pathways to seeing one problem in multiple lenses where you can find multiple solutions so with the argument of that paper, it's, um, it was to show that there is a disconnect between geoheritage and cultural heritage, even though they are essentially trying to achieve the same thing, just in different ways. So they're, they're both trying to achieve preserving <laughs> and also um, sharing uh, the knowledge of these sites, depending if it's cultural and, or geo. And what's not to say that we can learn from one another to really enhance how we understand these sites and um, the heritage, the experience, because in my view, geology and geography is so tied to, to society's development and to culture 
So what's not to say that we can talk to one another and to collaborate more and to try and find different ways to, you know, to try and find solutions to, to common day problems, essentially. And like, I'm a big advocate for collaboration and for interdisciplinary research because I just, I think for me, I just like working in the team and I like learning from other people and them picking up on something that I wouldn't have picked up on because I don't approach something the same way. And yes, that's kind of why I was like, we need to do more because we're all essentially trying to achieve the same thing. So why can't we talk to one another and try and achieve it together? It's great to work in a team, of course. And are you all then rub off each other and and move forward together with with a shared purpose exactly yeah thank you jasmine it's been really great to hear about your work and uh, good luck for the future thank you thanks for listening if you like this podcast please subscribe to the ask the geographer podcast series on itunes and soundcloud.com be inspired and stay informed with the society's wide range of resources many of which are free School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.